Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by our Family Leadership Program. If all you are experiencing when it comes to the Dad Tired Ministry is just this podcast, I'm so thankful that you listen, but man, you're honestly missing out on a big chunk of what we do. There's a whole group of guys, hundreds of guys now, who are connecting with each other, getting to know each other, holding each other accountable, meeting with each other's families, praying with each other. I mean, there's just a whole separate community that's like deep friendships are being formed. And so we'd love to have you be part of that. If you feel like you need that or you want that, you want to become the spiritual leader of your home and you want to do that with other like-minded guys, I'd highly recommend that you jump into our family leadership program. You can do that by going to dadtire.com forward slash lead. Anyway, I love you guys and I appreciate you listening so much. I think you'll find this conversation really interesting. So I'll get out of the way and we'll jump right in. When I saw the title, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community, I was super intrigued <laughs> by the title. I, I wanted to yeah. learn more and at the same time, super intimidated because I'm like, I want to have a conversation with Kurt, and but I don't even know if I can keep up. I mean, even just your, just your title alone intimidates me a little bit, but, mm. but hopefully we can, uh, I can at least ask somewhat interesting enough questions to, <laughs> to, uh, to yeah. have you share some of your wisdom with us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what's so interesting? As I as I looked a little bit more into your book, this most recent one, I saw you had another one, The Soul of Shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I talk about a lot with guys in our audience is I think there are two primary reasons in my experience and in my opinion that I've seen guys shy away from leading their family spiritually. One of them is just straight ignorance. A lot of us just didn't have a man to teach us what it looks like to be a man of God and to lead our right. families in that way. Yeah. We're just ignorant in that way. I think I would mm-hmm. fall under that mm-hmm. category yeah. and many yeah, others. Too. Okay. Too. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I think a lot of guys do. The second one would be shame. How in the world could I possibly lead my family to a God that I'm personally afraid to pursue because I've got big walls of shame up. Mm-hmm. And until I really address my own stuff, it's hard for me to consider myself as a spiritual leader in any shape or form. Mm-hmm for my family because I'm dealing with a lot of shame. Now, I haven't read The Soul of Shame, but I'm interested mm-hmm. in that title. And I'd love to mm-hmm. for you to maybe unpack. You were a whole book on shame. I'd love to hear why. Yeah. So I think to, even to back the film up just a little bit more, even from there, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing this work of psychiatry for a little more than 30 years. And it was about mm, in around 15 to 17 years ago that there was a kind of an introduction to some new emerging in, you know, research, not just research data, but kind of the, like the way that we were thinking about the mind. And it, I got introduced to this field of what we call interpersonal neurobiology. Mm. So, and it, that's a bit of a mouthful, but basically it's the realm of research that is really exploring the question of how does, like, first of all, what is the mind? And so I wrote a book called Anatomy of the Soul. It's back about 11 years ago, Anatomy okay. of the Soul, that really explores this intersection of neuroscience and spiritual formation. Hmm. And it's a book I wrote for the lay public. So it's accessible. And out of that then came this kind of growing awareness that, you know, into our consultation rooms as we're taking care of patients and as we're working with families and couples and men, we discovered that there's probably not a more important and powerful disintegrating kind of emotional and relational force in the world than shame. Wow. 
and you see, and, and, and so that, and so the soul of shame really explores the mechanics of shame as a neurophysiologic phenomenon, as an interpersonal phenomenon, but it also explores it in terms of the context in which it takes up residence in the biblical narrative. Hmm. One of the things that you find that's really quite striking, I think about shame is that it is a phenomenon. First of all, that is a, you know, it's a, this neurophysiologic event before it is this thing that I, you know, kind of categorize in terms of like, oh, I'm not good enough at this or not good enough at that. All those things, which are the stories that we tell to make sense of what it is that I'm feeling. Shame, first and foremost, is a thing that I experience in my body. Hmm. And this is why it's difficult when someone says, well, you don't need to be ashamed of that. Hmm. Because it's like saying, well, if you're suddenly anxious and your heart rate is up, I should just say to you, well, Jared, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be tachycardia. Hmm. And somehow just like, just because I just tell you that somehow your heart rate's going to slow down. Right. Like, that's not going to happen. Right. We got to find a way to actually engage your physicality in order for us to eventually engage your mind to think about, well, why is this and how is this happening anyway? And so it's a physiologic event. And the other thing, I mean, there are a number of different things that we go you know, like, that I cover in that book. But well, the other thing that's so striking is that shame is a phenomenon that can occur as early as 15 to 18 months of age in human development. Really? Right. Can so you we unpack that? Yeah, unpack that a little bit for us. Because... It's not a thing that I only experience when I am cognitively aware that you've said something that has embarrassed me in front of my friends or my neighbors or whatever, because it is primarily a physiologic thing that happens when I'm two years of age and I'm in the house and my dad is yelling at my mother and using a tone and a voice and a look and so forth. And I pick up on this and I sense mm. this or I see this or I'm four or six or eight, and there is the way, all the nonverbal ways in which these things, these messages are delivered, whereby which I then start to react and respond first physiologically to this, and only later, and by later in brain time, we're talking seconds to minutes, but then we develop these narratives in which I'm going to, as we like to say, first we sense, as far as the brain is concerned, as human beings, first we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Mm. Human beings do not primarily act because of what they think, they think in response to what they feel. Hmm. First, we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. And then, of course, when I make sense of something, if I'm the kid who grows up in the house who brings my 92% on my math test to my dad, who says, that's great, where's the other 8%? Hmm. The story that eventually I might tell is, I am not working hard enough. I need to, I, I need to get the 100%. And the reason I need to get the hundred percent is not primarily because I need to get the hundred percent. I need to get the hundred percent in order for me to regulate how God awful it feels when my dad says this to me, because when he says this, I sense the shame, you know, you know, because like, if I'm smart enough, I like, you know, I could say to dad, dad, I just want to pause you for a second. I brought you 92%. I worked my tail off. We both know that numbers are not my thing. I worked my tail off. And so I'm really curious What's really like going on for you right now, such that you are having a hard time finding it within yourself to talk to me, your 10 year old son in a way that would actually be supportive. I'm curious, did you miss your appointment with your therapist this week? Right. <laughs> like, but we don't do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, I, but I feel bad, not because I haven't gotten my 8%. I feel bad because my father is like behaving badly. Mm. But the story that I tell is that I feel bad because I'm not working hard enough. And so by the time I'm 18, the story that I tell to make sense of what I've been sensing is I need to make sure that I work hard enough in order for me to be accepted and acceptable. Mm. That's what I got to do. And this is the story that I tell. Now, imagine 
if you had your own kind of, as we like to talk about, as I talk about in this book, if you had your own private shame attendant, whose job it was to be the voice of these thoughts that you have, and he were to say to you, Jared, you're just not working hard enough. Hmm. Like, like, when are you going to get it? Like, what's on and on? Yeah. We, we, we recognize, like, if this is what we're listening to, now, now I'm sensing something in response to the sense I've made of what I sensed in the first place. So you get it. Hmm. So we start to do this before we have words. Here's the other thing, then. It's important to know. So this shame thing neurophysiologically begins early and often in human development. But the other thing that is true, when we read the biblical narrative, we don't wait until midway through the, you know, the, the account of Genesis to see it. Right. It's right out of the gate. It's mm. the, even before all the bad stuff happens. Right. The man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Like, look, the writers of Genesis are brilliant. Mm. Like, this is an amazing story. The Hebrews had an infinite array of words that they could have chosen. The man and his wife were naked and happy because if she's naked, like I'm happy, like, right, right. <laughs> right, right. The, the man and his wife were naked and they were confident. The man and his wife were naked and they were hopeful. They were like, there are a whole range of things yeah. that we could have said, but the writer is smart and the writer is getting us ready for what's coming. But the writer is also recognizing that in order for us to create, for us to, for us to answer the call of bearing God's image and restoring God's image, that's our calling in the world, bear God's, let them be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it to create beauty and goodness in the world. It ultimately requires that I'm going to have to do that with people from whom I'm differentiated, mm. like male, female, mm. and I'm going to have to be vulnerable. I'm naked and shame can't be in the conversation, mm. but we are warned. We get set up. We recognize Shame starts, I would contend that we talk about how this shame starts long before any fruit gets eaten. Hmm. And then we spend most of the rest of our days trying to cope then with the way that we are trying to regulate shame. So there's a lot of energy that gets built around this. And so then the question becomes, how do we respond to this? And I talk an awful lot about that in that particular book. But then I would say going further, an additional, and I guess for me, an additional and more robust response to what do we do about shame and evil's use of it to disintegrate who we are as individuals, as communities and families and men, fathers, all the things. It depends quite deeply, first of all, on recognizing that it's not good for man to be alone. And so my brain, as it turns out, if my brain's going to flourish, I have to recognize that in order for it to do so, in order for me to be who I am, I need you to be in the room. Hmm. There is no, we would like to say in the biological sphere, there is no such thing as an individual human mind because there's nothing that I do that in some way, shape or form is not at any given time responding to the input from other people who are around me, whether they're in the room or not, they might not even be alive anymore, but they're still taking up residence in the neural networks of my mind as it affects my memory and so forth and so on. And so when we then talk about what our desire is, we say like, well, we've been created as people of desire. Like, look, you read the Genesis account, one through 27, 28, 29, you get, if you, if you would get to 126, you would think that the pattern would be the same. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the water of above separate from the water below. And then it happened. You'd think you'd get to 126 and it would say, and God said, let there be humankind. And there was humankind, mm. but he pauses and he reflects. He has a conversation. Let us make mankind like that. We're going to like, 
there is like, it's a pause hmm. and then the drum roll. And we're going to do this. And one can imagine what is it like for the Holy Trinity to be in this space where this is about to take place and they look forward and they already see Good Friday coming. Hmm. And they say, we're going to do this anyway. Yeah. And we're going to come for our creation. But if we're going to make them like us, that means that they're going to have to live and flourish only with us. So when we talk about desire, we are made as a product of God's desire. God mm. has longed to make us wow. and to be in his image. Then we are people of desire. And this then becomes our longing to be known by each other and by God in order for us to create and become beauty in the world, all the different things that we make. But evil will use trauma and shame parasitically on our desire to disintegrate the whole project such that I'm left first and foremost trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do by myself. And so we can then, even when it comes to ministry, we start with individuals to which it's important for us to remember that I have to recognize that my spiritual growth necessarily requires that I think not just in terms of what am I going to do about me, but what are we going to do about me? What mm. are we going to do about you? What are we going to do about this cloud of witnesses that are part of the, what are we going to do for each of us? Because our brains are not made to function alone. It's not good for man to be alone, but you know, we're products of the West. We're products of modernity. We're products yeah. of people. We're, we're, you know, we're products of John Locke and everybody else that would say, Y'all need to be able to do this by yourself as we've been atomized and so forth and so on. Mm. And if we're not careful, we then can have conversations like this even. And each of our listeners can come away thinking like, okay, what do I have to do? Yeah. This isn't a matter of ridding ourselves of personal responsibility. It's a matter of recognizing that in fact, I do have personal responsibility, like an interior lineman on a football team. And I'm the only one who can do my job. And we are moving this ball down the field. Right. And if we are not first paying attention to that, evil will use that to cordon us off, paint us into a corner, and continue to use our shame as a weapon to disintegrate us. Yeah, let's pause there because there's so many. I have about 100 questions for each of those points that you just made. And you made so many great points. So. <laughs> Okay, first I want to go all the way back and just say this conversation alone is fascinating. I grew up in a church context where there was science and there was God. And those were two things that were separated. And we did not talk about those two things. It's like, oh, I don't believe in God because I believe in science, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I love about the way that you're writing and the way that you're thinking, the way that God's wired you is how those two things are intersecting and how yeah. science and the body works is revealing the beauty of how God has created and designed his people. Mm -hmm. So I just, right. I, I love right. that. I, lo I just want to say that yeah. right, off the, yeah. Yeah. right off the bat. Great. My wife is in the medical field. She's an RN. She's 10 times smarter than me. And so when she comes home from work and she comes and tells me something, I'm like, talk to me like I'm a six-year-old, you know, because <laughs> I don't know what, you got to dumb it down for me here. So I'm going to ask you to do the same here. You talked about, even for, I have young ones. I, what did you say the yeah. age range was that you can start to feel or start to sense that shame? Yeah. 15, well, to, 18 month, 15 to 18 months of age. Okay. So I have children in my home right now that would fall right. into that demographic. Put it under a microscope for me. Yeah. Obviously, they don't have a vocabulary to express right. that. They're feeling, they're sensing, right. 
this just how I, you know, one of the first things I thought the other day was my daughter, or one, as you were saying that, my daughter the other day uh, took a crayon and she colored all over our white wall. I gave her a stern look and she looked at me and I could tell it was the first time she's looked at me like this. And I sensed it stuck out to me because I sensed she looked at me like we've entered into a different area of relationship that we hadn't been in. Yeah. She'd felt shame from yeah. her dad. She yeah. did something wrong. She knew dad yeah. was upset with her and she yeah. could feel that. Obviously, yeah. she has no vocabulary to express it. But yeah. I saw it's almost yeah. like I saw shame in her eyes. Yeah. For right. the first time. Right. What's right. happening? You know, again, going back to we kind of like to separate. Well, there's spiritual stuff and then there's like science stuff. But those two things aren't together. But we know God has made all of this beautiful. And, yeah. and so tell us, right. like you look under a microscope in that little moment. <laughs> what's happening? Yeah. What's going on yeah. at a deeper level? Well, I'm trying to be mindful of our time and where we're going in our conversation, and maybe that's we can a, let's go where let's go wherever and have another one. A couple of things. Uh, the first thing I want to I want to also pause and back up and say this is that the way shame often gets talked about in our culture today is it's just assumed that it's a bad thing, mm. and what we're trying to do is to eliminate it. Okay, and what we're trying to do is to make sure that nobody feels shame anywhere, anytime. To which I would invite us to pay attention to. Paul's language in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he says, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance, hmm. and there is an ungodly grief that leads to death. Hmm. One of the things we have to recognize is that shame is an inbuilt part of the creation. It is what happens when people find themselves in an experience in which they are wounded and turning away from relationship in the process. Again, there's a whole chapter in which we talk about the mechanics of shame and what all happens. And we can touch on that about what happens in your daughter in, in just a moment. But I want us to recognize that shame is a signal. It is a signal to us that there's a problem. It's like the smoke detector. It's the smoke alarm going off in your kitchen. Now, nobody likes the smoke detector. Yeah. We don't like it, but we really wouldn't want to be without it. Right. Somebody would, might say that the difference between like conviction you're almost describing shame right now as conviction. Do you see those two things as one in the same? So I think it's important for us to remember that, like, as I learned from my daughter who was in seminary a while back, and she said, Dad, just remember, words don't have definitions. They have usage. Hmm. We use words in certain ways. We use them and we have an intention. So when, when someone says conviction, we might say, well, that conviction, that word, is a word that represents lots of different things that we sense and image and feel and think all in one word. Yeah. And the word shame may have some things that are similar to that, some things that are different than that, but we might be using those words differently, similarly, yeah. because we're talking about more or less maybe the same or different kinds of phenomenon that are, text that are actually taking place. I think what is important for us to recognize, like when people say, well, what's your definition of shame? Like there isn't, I don't have a definition. Hmm. I just have a way of describing what happens when we experience it. And when we do, the question is, are we able to respond with repentance mm. or are we responding without repentance? Are we responding in a godly way or in an ungodly way? So when Paul says, when there's a grief, when there is shame, even right, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance. I'm going to respond in a particular way to this thing. Imagine what had happened if Adam in the garden of Eden, when God comes walking in the cool of the evening, where are you? I'm here in the bushes hiding. What's up? I think I really screwed this up. Mm. What I really want to do right now is throw my wife under the bus, but I'm not going to do that because like she's got her own issues and you might have to talk to her about this, but I'm just going to own the fact that like, I think I really screwed this up. 
Hmm. I was asleep at the wheel. I wasn't paying attention. I chose not to. I decided to be passive about the whole thing. Do with me what you will. And I can imagine God saying like, oh my gosh, you owned it. Hmm. Well done. But we didn't get that story. Yeah. We got him throwing his wife under the bus. Right. And because that picture tells us how we respond to shame. Right. There's just blame. One person blames the other person blames the other. There's just everyone's blaming everyone. Because it first begins with ourselves. I blame you because it's an overflow of my own self-condemnation. That's how we operate. The minute that I'm blaming somebody else, I long ago have filled up my own self-condemnation tank. Mm. That's how we operate. And consequently, I drive you further from me. I drive parts of my mind from them within themselves. And so if I'm your daughter, who's how old? She's two now. Yeah. She's two. Her name is? Ella. Ella. So two-year-old Ella is just having a whale of a time with a crayon and a white wall. Right. Because like, why, like what else? Like, why yeah, would you have a white wall? If yeah, you don't giant have canvas. A, you, yeah, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And so you have this look and she has a look in response because she feels something in her body. And what you're really trying to do, you're like, you're doing your best with it, like with a dog. This is about the brain development level that two-year-olds have. Okay, like, yeah. even, like even really articulate two-year-olds. Like this is about as far like, they're like German shepherds. Okay. Yeah. And so how am I going to somehow like say to her what I'd like to say to a 22-year-old? Yeah. I can't do that. I'm somehow going to have to find a way to have her stop like painting the wall. Right. With a crayon. So I have this look because I'm like, I'm not happy. Like, I'm not, like, I get it. Like, if I'm in your shoes, like, I mean, she is so lucky to have you and not me as her dad. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so we look and she has a look. And then and we, we talk in the book about the work of Alan Shore and how he talks about shame being like you're living in and driving a standard, a standard transmission automobile. Hmm. That we have the accelerator, and we have the brake, and we have a clutch. And the accelerator is we, us as human beings in go mode, right? We're just moving, moving, moving. This is a two-year-old coloring right there. And then we have the brake, right? There's some brake that two-year-olds don't have that has to be developed and they have to, you know, you use the parent, introduce them to it. The sympathetic and the parasympathetic drive systems. And what Shore points out is what shame is what happens when someone slams on the brake and there's no clutch applied. Mm. We all know what happens to a standard automobile, transmission automobile. Like it doesn't just stop, it stops violently. Yeah. And so in some respects, she's in go mode and you apply the brake when you look at her, but you apply the brake in such a way that there's not quite enough in the moment connection with her such that she's able to stop without Mm. feeling something that's wrong. Okay. Fair enough. And like, okay, here's some really good news. It's important to know. As I tell parents, we're working parents. Look, the only way you can't screw up your kids don't have them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's, it's the it's yeah, the yeah. only way we yeah, don't yeah. screw up our kids, right? Yeah. We'd like to say that, look, the, the work of real maturity, we know that one of the signs of adult maturity is our capacity to truly forgive our parents hmm. for real. And so we know that our kids are going to have work to do. We as parents can either A, just completely ignore that. And like, I don't really care what it sounded like with her. And so like, I'm not, I'm like, that's her life. Like she yeah. just needs to stop coloring on the canvas. Right. Or two, I become so over-concerned that I never want her to be uncomfortable that I'm just going to be like, I wrap myself into a pretzel trying to figure out how I can make sure that I never give her any shame ever again in the rest of her life. Yeah. Which is also unhelpful. Yeah. 
Because what our kids mostly need from parents are not parents who are perfect, but parents who are able to effectively and durably repair ruptures. Hmm. That's what they need. And so, you know, she's two. And so whenever this was, you like, she may or may not even remember this now that she had this, but she yeah. might remember enough to know that like, she's not going to like, she's not going to color on them because what she's, not because she knows that that's wrong, but because she doesn't want to have, she doesn't want to have the, the brake slammed on with no clutch. Yeah. And so at some point you're going to start to talk to her and say like, yeah, what happened yesterday? Or it's, I mean, and this is going to happen once she has more words, mm-hmm. we're going to have these conversations where we are going to meet our children in these spaces and we are going to repair the ruptures when they happen. I have a story of what happened. I was my son who just as a young man with a radiant life, he'd had this faith journey in his middle school years and coming into high school that had been, he was just really, really unsure about faith. And then he came to Jesus when he was about a sophomore in high school and it just blew his doors wide open. Hmm. All these amazing things began to happen. And then he goes off to college and he comes home at Thanksgiving, his sophomore year and you know, he'd run into a buzzsaw and he was kind of in the middle of an existential crisis Hmm. and he wasn't sure about what he believed anymore. And he was really mirroring a lot of what my experience had been when Hmm. I was a kid. And by the time I was a parent, my posture was, I can't wait until my kid has an existential crisis because when that happens, I'm going to be the guy that my parents were never able to be. I'm going to be the guy who like has the conversation, who's curious with him, who says like, this is hard. We'll do this together. No big deal. No pressure. And, you know, do you ever have those conversations where you start to say things and about as soon as you notice that what you're saying is what you don't want to be saying, the words start to come out even faster <laughs> and louder because like somehow they're afraid that they're not going to be able to get out. Yeah. The avalanche well, this is what started. I was doing. Yeah, yeah. So like, this is a, like a two hour conversation in which my intention is to be like, I'm going to be Jesus to this kid. Right. As a, yeah. you know, as a 19 year old. Yeah. And I turn into like, the devil, like, <laughs> like incarnate, because at the end of our conversation, I'm basically kind of communicated with him. Look, if you don't believe in Jesus, I think you're an idiot. I mean, I you know, th- and it was not a joke, right? Like I was like, and I wasn't saying those words, <laughs> right. but I could tell. That's all he's feeling. Yeah. And I have to say, Jared, that two days later, he left to go back to college for his mm. you know winter, spring semester. And I like the next two weeks, I was a wreck. Mm. And because I discovered, oh, in that moment in which he's talking, he's pushing all the buttons of me to feel like I don't know enough. I'm not like, I don't, if I I didn't have the right arguments, I didn't have the right wisdom. I didn't have all the things like I'm not enough. His uncertainty is activating my shame Mm. of not being enough of a father. Mm. And instead of me being able to say, you know, I'm really afraid that I'm losing you as my son. And I'm afraid that I didn't do well enough. Instead of saying any of that, I basically condemned him in the process. Wow. And it took us a while to work through this. But I mean, I call him back and I say, like, look, I, I just it's just clear that like at the end of the day, this isn't really primarily even about your faith. This is about me being afraid that I'm losing my boy. Wow. I'm like, I don't like, can you forgive me? I'm like, and he said, Yeah. And and over a period of weeks, like he, you know, he would come over spring break and I'd say, like, are we okay? He said, Yeah, we're okay. But it's like my own shame is still very present with me. And even though he says, yes, we're okay, he's still struggling with faith. And now I'm thinking, now I'm part of the problem because I've got like, like who would want to follow Jesus? I like, if this is how you get treated by somebody who claims to be a follower. Mm. He went off to study abroad that fall. And, you know, I wasn't going to see him for a number of many, many weeks. And 
before he left, I said, you know, once again, I said, like, are we okay? And he said, dad, we're okay. But if you ask me one more time, if we're okay, we're not going to be okay. (laughs) And this is what shame does, right? We have these moments where we do something that evokes shame in somebody else. And then it comes for us. Like, and now I like, I continue to like worry about like what it is that I did Hmm. because evil is not about to go quietly into the night. What my son needed, if a return to Jesus was even going to be possible, he needed me to repair the rupture. He needed me to own that what you felt when you felt so ashamed when I was talking to you, like, that's not about you not being enough of a believer. That's not about you not having your crap together. That's about me wounding you. Mm. And as parents, you know, we're going to be imperfect when it comes to this whole thing. But when we notice that we're doing things that evokes shame in our children in ways that are unnecessary. And by here's where I would say to our listeners, the reality is, Jared, that there are things that we as human beings do for which shame is the absolute proper response. Hmm. It was a proper thing for me to feel ashamed of the way that I treated my son. Hmm. The question was, what am I going to do in response to it? Yeah. I could just ignore it, bury it, because I feel so awful about it and therefore reinforce it. Or I could take responsibility for it. Something that Adam had trouble doing. Something that I often have trouble doing. Yeah. But the more that we are in community, where we are learning how to practice naming the various parts of our stories where this shame exists, we discover that that practice is not primarily about ridding ourselves of ever feeling shame ever again. It is about learning that we don't have to be afraid of it. It is about learning that when we experience it, we don't have to bury it. We can pause and be curious about it and say, I want to name this in order for me then to, if necessary, repent. Yeah. Repent in a number of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Most guys, most humans have a hard time with this, but I think generally speaking, guys have a hard time with this because it's going to require a massive amount of self-awareness. Essentially, what you're going to have to do is say, if I'm hearing you right, I'm feeling something, but I have to get past all these layers that are in front of what I'm feeling, right? So your first reaction is, my son's having this crisis. I need to feeling all these things, talk, talk, talk. But, but really what I was feeling is, I feel like my relationship with my son is in jeopardy. And you had to right. peel back a bunch of layers to get there. And that right. takes some kind of skill, right? Doesn't well, that take some kind of skill in order for... Well, a- well let me just say this. Yes. But you know, like I, I tell folks, look... We like to say in our business that if people ask me, well, what do you do, Kurt? I say, like, my job is to help people tell their story more truly. Mm, I like that. And by that, I don't mean as opposed to telling it falsely, like you're lying to me, as opposed to you're telling it more fully. Right. You're including more of the story in it. Yeah. And this is not for cowards. Yeah. Right. There's a reason why Jesus did not say the gate is wide. The gate is narrow and few there are who pass therein. Like, I'm not making this stuff up. Yeah. And I read that and I'm like, uh, yeah, that makes sense because there are large parts of me that like yeah. are afraid to do the work to walk through that gate. Yep. And so we say like, in order for us to tell our stories more truly, we have to become professional human beings. Hmm. This is what we're doing. We're what, formation into the image of Jesus is about becoming a professional human being. Hmm. 
It is about becoming a person who knows who they are, not because they've just done self-analysis, but because I'm willing to tell my story to a cloud of witnesses, to a community of people who, when they hear it, will respond and they will also ask questions. Yeah. They will ask the kind of questions of things that enable me to be curious, and they're going to ask it without condemnation, but they're going to ask it persistently for me to be curious, to be able to say, oh, well, best behind that is behind this and behind and like, behind, well, yeah, it's me being afraid that I'm going to lose my boy. So I do not do that yeah. by myself. Like this is because our minds aren't made to do it by ourselves. Yeah. So they can't do it by themselves. Again, if I'm hearing you right, what my interpretation of that is it's less about skill. Like I made the assumption that it takes a bunch of skill to do that, to peel, peel back those layers and see what's there. Uh -huh. Maybe it's less about skill and more about courage. And so I have the courage to go through the narrow gate, knowing that it, the wide gate would be way easier to just not even have to go through it. And then the second part of what I'm hearing is it has to be done in the context of healthy community mm -hmm. where I'm going to have other people who are fighting for the same kind of thing, who are willing mm -hmm. to ask questions to help me peel back those layers, which leads me to the point that I think we were talking about a few minutes ago. We are all prone to wander away from that community because we're buried in our shame. And so, and we live in a culture that loves self and individualism. And so how am I as a 30 something dad who's working and I'm trying to take care of my family? How do I find that kind of community or those kind of people that are going to help me have the courage to peel back the layers? To be right. more so professional the first thing I would say, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is even as we frame the question, like I'm a dad who's working, how can I find this thing? Yeah. The first thing I would invite us to consider is that we have to be careful about framing the question that way, because it presumes that there's all these other things that are really fundamental. I'm a guy, I'm a dad, I'm married, you know, my husband, dad, work, so forth. This is not what we're saying explicitly, but this is how we can hear this. And we, yeah. but there is this thing that I want to do. Yeah. And what I want to say to us is that this thing that we're talking about doing, we have to be prepared to come to terms with the fact that unless it is the thing, before we are a male, before we are a dad or a husband, before we are a worker, that the mission of becoming conformed to the image of the king is the first, 10th, 20th thing that has to be on my mind. Mm. We live in a world in which often what we end up doing is like, I have my life and I really want to find a way to help my life be what it should be. And is there something over here that I can access that can help me do that? Yeah, and we want to say, that's getting the cart before, before the horse. Yeah, that's really good. If you want to be a professional pianist, it will be the thing that you do singularly, consuming more time than anything else you do in your life. Yeah. But if we want to be a professional human being, if we want to be professional Christians, if we want to be hard followers after Jesus, we actually have to be prepared to recognize that that is the work. And if I'm not doing the work there, answering the call to both reflect and restore God's image in all these other things I am is going to be pretty tough to realize. Yeah, I, I really appreciate so when you reframing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if we say, look, this is what I really want to become, then we say, okay, the metaphors and meanings that Jesus used to describe this were, you know, they, they weren't easy. I mean, he did say, you come unto me and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to quench your thirst. 
Come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden, weary. Come unto me, and I'm going to, you can put my yoke upon you. My burden is, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And he said, pick up your cross, among other things. And so if this is the work that we want to do, then we would say, well, and we know that we, it must be done in community as a way for us to then become these men who are conformed to Jesus, who are doing all these things. Then I want to ask, okay, who is one guy that I want to ask that I'm going to do this work with? Who's mm-hmm. the guy who I'm just going to find one guy. And it's not like, well, you said, so well, we sometimes say, well, how can I find this community? As if they're like, like they're out there. So we would just go find them. Right. No, we have to create them. We have to make them. Mm-hmm. Jesus made disciples. We have to do this work, recognizing that this is like a teenager's bedroom. It is not going to naturally clean itself up. <laughs> Entropy will overtake everything if I am not regularly putting it back into order. Mm. If I am not regularly, I mean, this is first, you know, this is first Peter five where he ends and he says, discipline yourselves, Mm. be alert, be vigorous. Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion is prowling around looking for someone to devour. Yeah. This is not a neutral universe. And so the inertia of entropy will overtake us if we are not doing the work of being curious about who are the people that are going to be part of my cloud of witnesses that are going to enable me to do the work of telling my story more truly so that Jesus, like he does in John 21 with Peter, do you love me? Three times, 33 times. Who knows how many times he said, but he was going after him. Yeah. And oddly enough, Jesus doesn't see fit to like go off and have a private consultation with him, right? Where Peter could like ensure confidentiality. No, we're going to have this conversation in front of everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're going to talk about like, yeah, that thing that you did six weeks ago to me. Yeah. Because Jesus knows he had given Peter a commission. I'm going to have you fishing for men, but like, here it is. It's the morning and you're out fishing again. Like you've, you like shame has you back in your old. Yeah. For fish, not for men. Like in your old, right. And this whole notion of naming and pursuing other men for the purpose of revealing our stories so that shame can be revealed in order for it to be recommissioned in order for us to create the beauty and goodness in the world that we were made to create before the foundation of the world and follow God into this space where when people see these works, they will glorify our father in heaven. And that's a really short kind of synopsis of the end of the soul of shame and the soul of desire. Well, I really am so fascinated by it. And one of the reasons I'm fascinated, one, one thing I'd like to pick your brain on, I know we've been talking, I've taken us on so many tangents. I apologize for that, but no, that's okay. We hear in the church world a lot. You should be part of community. We need to be part of community. It's kind of the Christian thing to be part of community. But I think what Mm -hmm. you're saying is there's a deeper, it's deeper than just, this is something we should do because it's the, it's the nice Christian thing. Be join a Bible study get a part of a community group. But I think from your perspective, you're like, it's not just something you should do because it's a good discipline to have in Christian community, but it's essential to you becoming more like Christ and displaying his good work to the world. Am I hearing you right on right. that? The reality is, Jared, we are creatures. It is you who has made us and not we ourselves, right? This is what the psalmist declares. God has made us and not we ourselves. We are creatures who have been formed. We do not form ourselves. Yeah. We are formed by forces that are much larger than us. The question is, who is it that's forming us? Yeah. Who to which 
master will we submit ourselves to be formed? And so you're right. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is a declaration of how the world really is. Hmm. When we declare the gospel, we say that when we come into the church, we intend to form you. The Holy Spirit in the community of saints intend to form you. Hmm. And, you know, we're kind of have allergic reactions to this, you know, that's that's very anti-American. Yeah. Very anti-Western. Yeah. Right. I think it's fair to say that it was anti-Garden of Eden too. I mean, like, right. I mean, they didn't want anybody telling them what to do. Cain certainly did. Like God said, look, sin's crouching at your door. It's desire is for you. It's going to form you. Yeah. Or you can master it. Cain made a certain decision. Mm -hmm. He didn't really want to be formed by something other than what eventually he was formed by. Hmm. we are always in the business of being formed. We have to be alert and awake to which force is it going to be? We declare in the church that we want people to be part of these things because if we are not, evil's coming for us. Hmm. And so we believe that this is necessary in the same way that if you say, look, I really want to be in shape. Your specialist that you go to to meet with at the gym, your trainer, they're not going to say, hey, I would suggest that you do this. I would suggest you do this. No, here's we're starting at six on Monday, six in the morning. Come prepared to do this. This is what we're going to do. Hmm. Like, well, you get to decide, do I want to be formed into a person who's a, like in shape yeah. or not? Yeah. I don't even feel, feel like we've cracked open your book yet and, and scratched the surface of, what, of the content that's in there. For the sake of time here, you've got an audience of young dads who are listening hmm. and they're trying. I really believe a man who's listening to this episode and to this show really does want to become more like Christ. Mm-hmm. And he, and he, yeah. and he sincerely, he's got the courage. The fact that he's even listening to this episode, he's got courage. He's allowing God and the Holy spirit to say, can show me areas where I don't have it yet, where I, right. where I've yet to be conformed into the image of Christ. If he didn't have that, he probably wouldn't be listening to this episode. So there is a sake, there's a sense of humility here. Yeah. That dad, I guess as parting words from your perspective, and I'll just let you kind of, I'll leave it open. You can, from shame, from community, from whatever angle you want to take it, what would you say to that? dad? The first thing I would want to say is uh, that the news about the world and about shame is far worse than you know, and it is far better than you can imagine. That's, what, that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is that the work that you, Jared, and I have, begun to, have been talking about here, this kind of work is the most life-changing work that a person will ever do. Mm. It is the kind of work that transforms people into resilient, durable, professional human beings who become outposts of beauty and goodness and who people see their lives and glorify their Father in heaven. And I will say it is the most difficult work you will ever do, but it's not difficult because it's complicated. It's difficult because we are people who are deeply ashamed and deeply afraid. And most of life amounts to naming those things and doing the work in not allowing our temptation to not trust God in multiple, multiple micro moments of our lives where shame and fear want to have the last word. It takes discipline to learn how to do life differently. 
But it also requires that in order for me to do that, I have to have an embodied experience with real people who on a regular basis are reminding me with their faces and their voices and their eye contact and their embrace that Jesus is real. He can't just be somebody I make up as a figment of my imagination or something that comes off the page of a book. And so I have to be doing the work that enables me literally to be immersed in the person of Jesus such that I'm actually able to then become this beauty that scriptures proclaim that God wants. We are his craftsmanship. Hmm. And that takes the kind of work that we often say we want to be able to do, but that we don't. Hmm. And so the challenging thing is that, you know, Jesus said the gate is narrow not because God has fixed a narrow gate and only a few people get in. The gate is narrow because it only needs to be narrow because there really, at the end of the day, aren't that many people who are that serious about doing the work. Wow. We want to want to be serious about it, but at the end of the day, it's hard for us to be serious about it because I got all these other things that I got to do and we get that. And so I will say, we don't try to eat the whole meal in one bite. This is the other part of the good news. That's far better than you can imagine. We do this one step at a time, one day at a time, one conversation at a time, one experience of confessional community at a time. We do this over and over and over again because God isn't worried and God's not in a hurry. Hmm. He is coming to find us and he is coming to find the beauty that our lives are to become, not least in the parts of our lives and in the memories of our stories that we hate the most. Wow. It is in the communities that we tell these stories and sense someone being the face and hands and voice of Jesus coming to find us, that those parts of our stories are regenerated or reclaimed. And we then free up that energy so that it is accessible for us to create the beauty and goodness in the world that God has waited for us to do from before the foundation of the world. So well said, the soul of desire, discovering the neuroscience of longing, beauty, and community, also the soul of shame. Uh, we scratched the surface of both of those, but I'm, I'm sure there's so much more depth. And I encourage every listener to go out and pick up those copies, leave a review on Amazon. That's helpful for authors when you do that. Yeah. But you'll also, I'm sure, love to hear Kurt's voice in that and uh, without me stumbling my way and getting in the way with all my tangent questions. <laughs> which I have a million more, by the way, maybe we should do a part two because I've got so many more, but thank would, you. Kurt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I would love to do that. And I think, you know, one other way too, Jared is that, uh, that if people are interested and want to you know, stick their, you know, their toe in the water here a yeah. little more. Yeah. I have a podcast that really explores a lot of this stuff. Yeah. What uh, is it? I have a co-host. Yeah. It's called the being known podcast. Okay. With- me, uh, Kurt Thompson, and my friend Pepper Sweeney and I co-host this and have ongoing conversations about a lot of these things that we're talking about. And you know, you can get it on uh, Apple or Spotify, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I think we're finding it to be. People have reported that it's been really, really helpful, and um, we hope that that can continue to create energy and intention on people's parts to, you know, become professional human beings. I love it. 
Thank you. Thanks for taking the time and trying to talk to uh, dumb it down to a six-year-old for a guy like me. It Jared, was really, really, really stop. helpful. Just, just stop. Okay. Great to <laughs> really, be with you, man. Great to be with you. Great meeting you. We'll have all of our listeners go pick up a copy of that book. Check out the podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for hanging out. Okay. All right. We'll see you.